0: Hi folks, welcome to Season 3 of Filmography Club. I'm Jason Kavanis and this season we're looking at the work of Denis Villeneuve, more specifically his English language work. Villeneuve is a Canadian director, producer, and screenwriter. His directorial debut was the 1998 film August 32nd on Earth, which was followed by 2001's Maelstrom. 2009's Polytechnique, and then On Sundays in 2010, with several short films in between. Between these four French-language films, he racked up an impressive number of awards, which brings us to where this season starts, the first English-language film he released, Prisoners. This season, we'll be concentrating on his English-language work only, so that's Prisoners Through Dune. Villeneuve is one of the most exciting filmmakers currently working in the Hollywood system. He fluidly moves from genre to genre, bringing a very competent understanding of cinema to each project. His films tend to be very watchable in their first viewing, but these films truly present themselves in full upon repeat viewings. He's the perfect filmmaker for this season as we've lined up a pretty impressive row of guests, which brings me to today's guest, Madeline Hicks. Madeline is a Nashville-based writer, director, and performer. She's a highly collaborative multimedia artist with a focus on theater and film She is currently in production for her first feature film, Sunshine Girls, funded in part by the Tennessee Arts Commission. Madeline has lots of insight into this one, and it was a pleasure speaking with her. Beware. Of course, there are spoilers ahead for this film and maybe some other Villeneuve movies, too. So just be aware of that. So here it is. My talk with Madeline Hicks about the thriller slash drama 2013's Prisoners. And I'm joined by Madeline Hicks. Madeline, good morning.
1: Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm
0: great. I'm great. How are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm ready to talk about this crazy movie.
0: Oh my gosh. Crazy indeed. Yeah. I I recently, uh, of course, gave it the rewatch for this episode. Are are you bummed out?
1: Well, I will say this was brand new for me, so I totally missed it when it came out originally. And I've now watched it twice in Mm -hmm. one
0: week. Oh, Uh, wow.
1: So just kind of sitting heavy with me. Sorry uh, about that. Yeah, no, but really um, needed a second watch. There's so much going on, and I missed some some things that happened the first watch. That it, it made it fun to watch it again, even though fun is maybe not the right word, but interesting to watch it a second time.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, it's it's a heavy movie. I, I guess we should unpack it a little bit. I will have already gone into that a little bit during the intro, but it's a 2013 heavy drama a little under two and a half hours long, not something you just want to put on to pass the time. You don't want to (laughs) show someone just, just put in the movie and Hey, check out the scene. You're not going to do that with this movie. It's, it's a very Villeneuve seems to like taking his characters and he just threw so much at these poor people.
1: It is thick.
0: This movie got by me the first time when it came out too, and it was a commercial and critical success. And somehow I I didn't notice it. Uh, I, Went back, once Denis Villeneuve popped up on my radar, I went back and started watching his older stuff. I was blown away. Powerhouse performances, a great cast. Just a really stacked cast.
1: Uh Amazing cast.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah, you're right. The second time I watched it, I got a little bit more out of it. The first time I just kind of appreciated it on a narrative level. The second time I started noticing some symbolism. There were things going on in it that I didn't quite catch the first time. And I'm not saying that I totally... 100% understand this movie quite yet.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Maybe
0: you can give me some insight here because there's still a couple of things I'm not totally clear on.
1: There's a lot going on and I, that's honestly my favorite kind of movie to watch and it makes it worth watching multiple times because you can get something different out of it every time. And there's so many different little Uh, storylines weaving together. It's really a rich movie. And the cast, the performances, and it's long. I think we should say it's almost three hours long. Mm -hmm. Um, So for it to remain like engaging throughout is really, yeah, says a lot about the screenplay and the the performances.
0: This movie, really, it's a lot of people in rooms talking. Yep. And I've noticed that the older I get, the more I kind of like those movies. And it helps that Roger Deakins was the DP on this.
1: Yes. Oh, Beautiful. I can't. I can't imagine that anyone else shooting it after watching, especially after watching it twice. Mm-hmm. What a master of cinematography! It could have been a really straightforward, just kind of like crime drama thriller, and it wasn't. In part, I think because of the cinematography.
0: It was gorgeous to look at, it, even if the, the subject matter was just so, frankly, uh, dour, depressing. I think that's yeah. that's a fair word. I guess we should talk a little bit about what the film is about it's a 2013 film uh firmly a dramatic film Denis villeneuve's first english language film
1: i think yeah, I yep you're right
0: enemy the movie we're going to talk about i believe on the next episode or at least the next uh, Denis villeneuve film i'm going to talk about on the podcast was filmed before this one but for whatever reason prisoners was released first then enemy both starring jake gyllenhaal by the way and uh for my own sanity's sake, I decided I know that Denis Villeneuve has a body of work before this film. I'm just going to kind of set it aside for right now. He's got a lot of uh, French language stuff that he did up in Canada.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he's got some short films, super talented, lots of, lots of stuff to say about those movies. But just for my own sanity on this season, we're yeah. going to set those aside. But yeah, right out of the gate, this is his introduction really to Hollywood He scored Roger Deakins right out of the gate, which is a massive get.
1: Yeah. And I was I actually was looking into that because I was like, how did these two link up? And you may have already read this as well. But uh, apparently, like, Deakins approached him and was like, hey, I want to work with this guy, which is like, what a compliment as a director.
0: (laughs) I had not seen that, but it doesn't surprise me because I can't imagine Villeneuve, him being a newer filmmaker at the time, having the nerve to approach Roger Deakins.
1: Yeah, I, you I can't couldn't imagine mail out. Yeah, that, that wouldn't work. So.
0: No, no, he yeah. comes to you. Yeah, and he, he came to the right guy. I love Denis Villeneuve, obviously, since I'm doing a whole season about his work. Let's talk about the cast a little bit. We've got Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal in the two leads. Yes. They both do a wonderful job. I think Hugh Jackman, uh, he's totally believable in his anguish and rage. Yeah. Any criticism I might have about it, it's almost sort of one note in a way. He doesn't have a lot of range in this film anyway, but that's fine because the script just doesn't call for that kind of, that kind of range.
1: Yeah. And I will say that is my one, my one complaint in performances because in overall they're so strong and overall Hugh Jackman is so strong but there were a couple moments where, yeah, one note is a good way to put it. I was actually an actor in theater before I ever did film. And I remember like a defining moment as an actor was um, in college. Every theater actor wants to play the most dramatic role possible. You know, you want to scream and cry and like throw a fit and have a meltdown. It's, it's juicy and fun, as, especially as a young actor who's, you know, maybe kind of just getting into the craft. And I, in my college acting class, had picked out, of course, just, like, a horrifically sad monologue to do. Uh, and it was about a woman who had, like, survived an assault. And I'm just, like, sobbing, delivering this monologue, and I'm feeling so good about it. And my acting professor was like, listen, that was great. All of the emotions make sense. You're not, like, over acting or overreacting to anything. But wouldn't it be more interesting if you were trying not to cry? What if we saw you feeling all those feelings and you're restraining it, and it just maybe occasionally kind of slips out? But you have we have to watch you restrain yourself emotionally. Hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, you're right. It's more interesting if you're trying not to cry. And with Hugh Jackman, I'm like, be more interesting if he was trying not to scream and like rage every moment. And we only see him really cry once when he sees. Much later in the film, like the, the picture of the clothing that has blood on it. He mm. cried a couple still aggressively masculine tears, but we see a little bit of crying. I'm like, that's so much more like I just wish that there had been a little more nuance to his his rage and appropriately angry and upset. Sure. But yeah, I wanted a little variety, I think.
0: The one scene that stands out that you're right. I, I totally agree with everything you just said. The one exception to that, I think, is... Uh, right when the girls have been abducted and it's all still very new and he's talking yeah. to Loki and he's, he keeps asking like, well, why? Why Why would he do that? Why would he run? Why, why would he get in the vehicle yeah. and leave? Why? That whole thing where it just didn't compute to him. He he seemed to be like, okay, I'm trying to keep yes the pretense of social decorum. Yes. But also my daughter is missing and, and, and where is she? I don't understand what any of this means. They said he ran. They said he tried to get away. I don't understand why he would try to... Run away. We're considering all
1: possibilities, Mister Dover. I hear what you're saying. I'm not crossing anybody off my list. Just let me do my job.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the one exception to that. But yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right about that.
1: Yeah, but but, but still a great performance for him and something a little different. I mean, I'm not a big uh, big into like action movies, and so I'm not I've never really connected with Hugh Jackman you know in a meaningful way watching him mm-hmm. uh perform but this movie it was pretty pretty heartbreaking and despite him just being kind of enraged the whole movie sure you care a lot about him and understand where he's coming from
0: he's pretty pathetic by the end of it it's it. Uh,
1: yeah so good <laughs>
0: the extremely talented uh viola davis is yeah. in this film she and uh, maria Bello do just to have absolutely wonderful performances as well. Terrence Howard, again, stacked. you know, uh, Melissa Leo. I'm not very familiar with her work. I know her face.
1: Yeah. I can't believe anything. I didn't recognize her at all. And she was fantastic.
0: Yeah. I'm looking at her filmography right now and it is, it's a long one. She's been working since 1985 in film. Oh, wow. And uh, wow. She's in a lot of stuff here. I did not suspect that she was the villain all along and yep. un- right until the very end. And then it made total sense. Like, wow, she is extremely menacing now.
1: Yes. Oh, that well was cast. Really, I did not see that coming. And I, yeah, my very first watch, um, I was really hungry for some kind of like flashback or some kind of just like clear cut. This is how the girls were taken because you never see it. Ha- like there are right. so many things and this is just good storytelling, but There are so many things you can only imagine how they played out. And you're just the way the pieces of the puzzle are kind of given to you over the course of the movie. It's almost it would be almost impossible to know for sure what happened until almost the end.
0: Yeah, we get one little bitty flashback, I believe, when Joy is Viola Davis and Terrence Howard's daughter. Right. Or did I mix the two girls up?
1: Yeah, Joy. And I think the other one's Anna.
0: We get we get a flashback very brief of her her escape. Yeah, that's that's the only thing that we get as far as a flashback goes. Villeneuve, I've just been digging around and looking at his directorial style and looking at what his trademarks and things that he's sort of noted for. Violence just off screen tends to be something that he he, yeah. he revels in, and or not necessarily violence, but things going awry, but the camera not quite showing it. I noticed on the second wa- uh, watch, like okay, they're having a nice Thanksgiving. But the girls are not here. Something horrible is going on with those girls right now. But the film gives you absolutely no indication that that is, in fact, the case. Yeah. So so you watch it again and you realize, yep, while they're sitting around having this lovely, pleasant conversation, their daughters are in really big trouble. Yeah. Any discussion of this cast would be incomplete without talking about Paul Dano.
1: Oh, I love I honestly I have a soft spot for him. I just there's something about him. I just love I just love him every time. Even in this movie, I love him a little bit, which is confusing and upsetting. But obviously his character, there's so many different reads of his character that you could take. And the way he portrays this character, the whole movie is kind of one big gray area. But I feel like I struggled right. with his character and what happens to his character the most, probably if anyone, in terms of, it's just unclear how competent he is. It's unclear if he has you know, an intellectual disability, or if he was just abused and traumatized to get to this. And maybe it's some of each. And then there are indications that he's aware of what he's done and is maybe even enjoyed what he's done. But yeah, it's, it's such a, a juicy character.
0: I mean, I like Paul Dano a lot. He's been in yeah. some fantastic movies. Uh, he's got a punchable face. And I think that this movie, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't mean that as a slight to you, Mr. Dano, if you're watching, if you're listening, yeah. but
1: yeah, it's those snowy little cheeks. You just.
0: He's got kind of a punchable face and it was yeah. put to great effect in this film. Yeah. I think this movie was nominated for an Academy Award for makeup. I know that they oh. got they got yeah. some uh, accolades for the makeup. And if you've seen the movie, uh, you know why.
1: <laughs> Man, I mean, he was unrecognizable. That must have been hours of special effects makeup to get yeah. his, his eyes were like swollen shut.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but here think- it is. Best makeup. They they won a Saturn award for that. Yeah. Good.
1: That's yeah. amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well done. This is one of those films where you put yourself in Keller's shoes. You might do the same stuff that he did. Maybe. I mean, yeah. we don't like to think about that. I, I certainly don't think that I, I, I like to think that I'm not the kind of guy that would torture. And this movie does set up that argument that we heard 10, 15 years ago in the political sphere about Mm-hmm. the ticking the myth of the ticking clock and the terrorist and do you torture that terrorist like that never happens it almost never happens in real life so it seem, seems to be sort of a, a a moot argument to have but this yeah. movie presents us with one that seems somewhat realistic when he says you know it's day five they this this could be day five with no water yes. for those girls this this might be their last night that we yes. can do something about this there's your ticking clock right there and if it's your little girl i don't have well, kids you have but if those people love their kids half as much as I love my dogs, I get it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and yeah, for Hugh Jackman's character, and this is kind of going back to the one note thing, you don't really see him struggle much at all. Um, maybe he has moments where he's frustrated or disheartened or, but he never really seems on the verge of letting Paul Dano go once he's capped, you know, I mean, he, he basically allows, um, He's at Terrence Howard's character and Viola Davis. When when that scene with the three of them, he's basically like, look, if you guys want to let him out, that's on you. I'm not going to stop you, which to me is almost that's where I can relate a little more. I, I have a hard time imagining, which I don't have kids either, but I have a hard time imagining imprisoning someone and torturing them. But I can put myself in the shoes of someone who might let it happen if I right. think it's save a loved one. Yeah, um, And I wish that, honestly, I wish especially Viola Davis's character had engaged more because she's just uh, maybe a little underutilized in this movie for how talented she is.
0: I think so, too. She had she had a couple of nice scenes in this, but uh, she's she's just such a, a talent that it, it if anything that's less than the spotlight being on hers almost seems like a waste. But yeah, I, I think in this movie she could have used a bit more screen time. Maria Bello, too.
1: Yeah, I was talking about women who didn't have enough screen time. Oh, this, this, she just was comatose after she started taking whatever prescription pills she was taking, which, okay, my first watch, I was frustrated. I'm a very big advocate for having more rich women on screen and off screen, just in general. And things are changing positively in the film industry, but. I watch a movie like this, and all the performances are are so incredible. But but I can't help it. Imagine what if Viola Davis had been cast as the Hugh Jackman type character, and she had been, you know what I mean? Because I could see sure. the the women sure. in that. But uh, yeah, my first watch, kind of frustrated by uh, yeah Keller's Keller's wife just being bedridden. And then my second watch, I I, I get it. I mean, it, it, in the sense that we're all prisoners and we're all going to cope in one way or another. And we're all trapped by something, it, a very real scenario that I can believe is someone just kind of numbing that pain.
0: Keller and uh, Grace, I believe his wife's name was. That's which right, yeah. there's something to that name, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the two of them, imme- well, not immediately, but they they both just not knowing what to do, turn to substances. Yep. Yeah. You know, almost immediately. I think he has, he says he's having his first drink in like nine and a half years. It's like, oh, guy, come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So there's definitely some symbolism going on in this movie that I did not notice on my first watch through. There's something going on with religion. Yep. And I feel like Keller or two, I guess I'm going to call Keller and Loki the two leads. They seem like the two leads to me. Are they supposed to be two sides of a coin? Keller seems like he's he's a very religious man. And I love how Villeneuve communicates that to us. I almost didn't catch it, but the little cross dangling on his rearview mirror. And did you notice that it was missing towards the end of the film? That's yep.
1: interesting, though.
0: No? I thought that that was very interesting. I caught that yeah. on my second time. I was like, this guy just lost his faith. And he communicated it just through a lack of a visual
1: yeah, that's really
0: clever. It might be too subtle for a lot of people. Yeah. It was too subtle for me the first time, but it was not there later on.
1: Oh, yeah, which is the whole like the goal of the uh the ant character is to uh, yes. make them doubt and question God. That's yeah. Yeah. And then Loki's character, who we haven't uh, Jake Gyllenhaal speaking of performances is also just incredible. I love mm-hmm. Jake Gillen. But yeah, his character seems did you pick up on like any specific sort of religion that he follows? Because I know he was super into like the horoscope, and he's got like the tattoos,
0: but- right. He's got a cr- he's got a cross on his hand, but his yeah. neck, he has that big eight pointed star. And I did a little digging around on what yeah. the eight pointed star means. And I think, there's many different eight-pointed stars that mean many different things. I think the one that he had was a pagan eight-pointed star. But eight-pointed stars, uh, again, just digging around, they, they tend to mean compassion, humility, balance, and uh, hope. That might be the one that I think that I was going to kind of put a pin on that and say maybe, maybe that's what they were, were getting at, hope. But again, that's a pagan symbol and a Christian symbol tattooed on the same guy. And I didn't quite know what to make of that. And I sure don't know what to make of his name. I mean, he's named Loki for a reason. I I just... Yeah,
1: Yeah, because that's... Is that like a Greek god or a... It's a
0: Norse. uh, The Norse god of uh, mischief.
1: Yeah. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot going on with that, with his character, and then I was wondering there was a kind of like a throwaway line where he when he discovers like the priest who has the body in the attic who is also presumably a pedophile or a sex offender in some way that it was kind of unclear in my first watch how he got to the priest's house at all but I, I think he was just trying to track down. Suspects.
0: I feel like that could be its own movie now. Yeah, I, that was. <laughs> The husband of our villain.
1: Yes, yes, which I did yeah. not first watch either, but yes. Uh,
0: I, I don't know what happened to that priest, by the way. Did he just – did he kill that guy? Did he did he go to jail? I, I don't know. It was like that, that just kind of got left to the yeah. side, and, and they never really followed up on what happened with the priest and why that guy was dead. Did he kill the guy? Clearly, yeah. the guy was tied up at some point, and he just died of starvation, or – I mean, it's all yeah. – it's all just questions that we never really get answers to, which I'm fine with. I like ambiguity.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. I don't think
0: we got answers to that.
1: No. And and that really was disorienting the first watch for me, trying to figure out how those pieces fit in as, as the, um, the sort of uh, what was his name? The, the man that we find out was like a a childhood victim that escaped. That was like the copycat guy. Um,
0: Right. He was the second person that had been taken by that couple. I believe
1: that took me a while to kind of work out how that was all tied in as well. But Mm -hmm. I feel like there was some implication with Loki going back to this sort of, where does he fall within like religion? There was something when he, he found the priest and he found the body and he was like threatening the priest character. He said something along the lines of like how Mm -hmm. much he would like to like beat the shit out of him or like,
0: I used to live in this home yeah, and I had to deal with priests like you all the time. And it would, yeah. he said something like it would, you know, bring me no shortage of joy to, you know, do something to yeah. a fuck like you.
1: Would you make me wonder if he was abused as a child or. That's right. the one
0: little bit of backstory that we get on, on, on Jake Gyllenhaal's character on Loki. Yeah. Uh, another common theme or another trope of Villeneuve's is even though he doesn't usually doesn't write his films, he tends to leave backstories just to the side. He never really.
1: No. Everyone
0: just sort of appears and then you're just in it and you don't really get much idea of where these people came from.
1: Yeah. Which bothered me at first, but I actually grew to really appreciate it because, first of all, I mean, we didn't need to add any more to the runtime. I mean, I'm like the backstory that I might have liked to receive would have added a half hour. in. ultimately, I don't think we needed it because the actors were so the actors added so much like depth and I feel like there are subtle things with Jake Gyllenhaal's character that gave you just enough, like that line about, yeah, maybe he had been abused. The tattoos, kind of conflicting tattoos. And then his like eye twitching for some reason felt like very informative. And then the introduction scene with him at the Chinese restaurant. I love that that's how we met him. He was awkward and nervous and kind of weird and out of context of the rest of the movie you see him just doing the work and
0: on Thanksgiving all by himself at a Chinese restaurant yeah no family so we know that it's it's a holiday it's a familial holiday and he's just at a Chinese restaurant yeah by himself I guess he only just has the work
1: and he doesn't even seem to have any sort of like friendships or like it doesn't seem like he collaborates much even within his job which seems to be all he really has that he cares about and is invested in but even at work he seems kind of alienated he doesn't have like a partner. He's like showing up alone. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> and, and most of the uh, dialogue that he has with other cops, it's the chief. And it's just him telling the chief to go fuck himself or whatever. Like they yeah. clearly don't like each. He, he clearly just he just walks all over his doormat of a chief, just insults him yeah. at every turn. But uh, yeah. I remember my wife, which I was kind of laughing, chuckling at it when my wife and I were watching it the other night. And she said, well, what's the guy going to do? Fire his best detective? Right. When you're the chief. You just kind of every- take it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Get rid of that guy. At one point, my my running theory was that, okay, this movie represents two ways of seeing the world and handling the world Mm -hmm. uh, or dealing with what life throws at you. You've got Keller, Hugh Jackman's character over here, and he's a man of faith. Uh, He's a family man, a survivalist prepper.
1: Yeah. On top
0: of that, which I thought was great because he was just not prepared for this one thing. Uh, yeah, but but anyway, and then you've got Loki, who seems to be more scientific, more rational. He's trying to keep his emotions in control pretty much at all times. He only loses it once when he yeah. smashes his uh his keyboard and stuff at his desk. Yeah. I thought maybe that that's what they were going for there, but I'm I don't know that well, the name yeah. Loki even works with that though.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like there's so many different ways you can kind of read the the different like religious elements. But something interesting that. That kind of brought up, which I I've thought about and kind of struggled with, and I don't have an answer. Um, but do you feel like if Keller hadn't involved himself in kidnapping Paul Dano's character, do you think that Loki would have solved the case anyways? Hmm. I don't hmm. know.
0: <laughs> That's interesting.
1: Because it, in a way, slowed Loki down when you know, Paul Dano's character was missing, but then...
0: Because he was following Keller around and...
1: Right, which you could argue that was kind of a waste of his time, but ultimately did it lead him? Yeah, I just wonder how much, what how things would have played out if Keller's character hadn't involved himself at all.
0: Well, they both sort of figured out who the bad guy is independently of one another, taking two separate routes. Yeah. Keller figured it out when he spoke with the little girl who came back I'm gonna yep. call her Joy. I think that was Joy, and Anna mm-hmm. was his daughter.
1: Yeah. Grace and Joy. When,
0: when she said, Well, Grace is the mother.
1: Yeah. And oh, that's right.
0: There's definitely some religious stuff going on with it. did oh, you notice yeah. that he's a he's a carpenter? Yeah. He's a carpenter.
1: <laughs> yeah. His
0: mother's name is Mary. That was in the fine print, like that the scene oh. with his when they talk about his father committing suicide, and we get that newspaper yeah. clipping. If you pause it on that, his mother's name is Mary, okay. his wife's name is Grace. He's a carpenter. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. He, he clearly represents Christianity over there. Yeah. But, so Keller figures it out when the little girl who's in the hospital says, I saw you there, or you were there. You mm-hmm. were where I was or something like that. That's when he puts it together. Oh, it's the aunt. Yeah. And then he just takes off with no word of explanation when really there's cops everywhere. You can tell the cops. Why did not yeah. you not tell the cops, guy? Just,
1: that was frustrating.
0: Just tell the cops. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And, yeah, I'm not sure how intentional this was, but did you, uh, you know, in your first viewing or recent viewing, read that for a moment as um, that he could potentially have been the, like, captor, like, yeah. huge character? Yeah, that's what I wondered when she said you were there, if it was going to be one of those, like, sort of split identity things where he didn't know he was the one who had kidnapped.
0: Right. And, and Villeneuve will do that. He'll, he'll, that's something he'll cover. We'll talk about that next, next time, but uh, on the enemy episode, but yeah, that's what I kind of thought that too. I thought that might be kind of a a head trip to do something like that and make him the guy that actually did it. The fact that he was being followed by Loki kind of gave me a little something to stand on with that theory that turned out to not be true at all. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah, he figured it out that way. And then Loki figured it out. But what brought Loki to the aunt's house? I can't quite remember what that was.
1: They, I feel like they alluded to what happened, but we don't know for sure. So, like, he uh, chases after uh, Keller when Keller runs out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's too far behind to actually follow the car. So he just comes to his own conclusion of, oh, he's going back to this, like, abandoned apartment complex where... Uh, Loki knows something weird is going on, but hasn't actually discovered it. So I think uh, to me, it seemed like he must have then found Paul Dano's imprisonment. And then maybe he. he That's right. Right. So that's
0: right. That's right. Cause this film does it on three different occasions where we get a slow fade to black. Yeah. As an edit. And it's like implied like, well, of course you know what happens next. So he heard, he heard the banging. And yeah. then he started walking towards the, uh, when, he's, when he hears the banging in the shower and he starts walking towards that, we don't need to see what happens next. We, we get it. Yeah, you're right. right. That's that's what it is. And he probably spoke to uh, Paul Dano's character who is named Alex Jones, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Hmm. Like the broad guy, weird. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: and he plays actually the more sane Alex Jones as a matter
1: yeah. of fact. Yeah, uh, <laughs> way more likable.
0: Okay, so that's what happened. He he goes and he probably speaks with Paul Dano's character and then puts it together. Him or at least he doesn't quite put it together until he sees the picture of her dead husband who has the same pendant on it. And he realizes that's the guy. This yeah. is the wife, and that's when he pull, puts it together right before he confronts her when yeah. she's poisoning the little girl. Okay. couple of things i didn't understand in this movie one we just mentioned why did keller not tell the cops when he'd figured out when he figured it out because it's a lot easier to show up with a bunch of guns than to just go in there and try to do things by yourself and not tell anyone where you are that that, yeah. that didn't make a lot of sense but this is a guy under a lot of stress so and i, don't and know. I
1: think maybe a part of it and this is maybe just me wanting it to be justified but maybe a part of it is he's so um obsessed with being the hero and whatever sort of traumatic situation like the way he was like prepping for disaster and then like the opening scene with his son where he shoots the deer and he's talking about you got to be ready for hurricanes tornadoes you know always be prepared people turn
0: on each other he said yeah
1: yeah i i feel like and then i feel like there's an argument with loki where he's talking about how you know His daughter's not waiting for Loki. She's waiting for her father to come rescue
0: her. So I was going to say, as you were saying that, that popped into my head. That could be a tell, but maybe this guy needs to be the hero. Day six. And every day, she's wondering why I'm not there to fucking rescue her. Do you understand that? Me, not you, not you, but me. Yeah. Selfish, though. That's a selfish move on his part. Uh, There's... ah. I get so frustrated watching that guy, but then again, I'm I'm not under the pressure that he was under. So
1: yeah, but I, I think he wanted to finish, and because if he had scooped up his daughter and run out of the house with his daughter in his arms, it would have completely, and uh, at least in his mind and his family's mind, justified the horrible things that he had done. Mm-hmm. Um, if if he ran out of that house with her, but mm-hmm. yeah, that uh, he got himself put in a hole. So
0: and and there's something going on with. That hole as well that I haven't quite figured out because our two leads both descend into pits, basically, like literally, and they come away and and, and it accomplishes two different things. He obviously goes down to that pit and he keeps he's just stuck there until the end of the movie. And then there was the whole basement thing with uh, with Loki when he went into the priest's house and he dropped down into that basement. Again, there's something there that I'm just not quite putting together
1: and is that supposed to be like, at least with um, Keller's character, is that supposed to be like a Jesus situation? Like, are we supposed to imagine maybe he's going to spend a few days in this dark cave and then be brought out? Cause it seems like, um, and I know the ending is intentionally, you know, open to your interpretation, but it seems like Loki is aware that, you know, he hears the whistle and he's going to let him out. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, From what I've heard, and I don't know that this is true, but I just in my digging around, and I don't even remember where I got this from. I I just took in so much media about this movie the last few days. But there's really not a director's cut for this movie that could even be possible because everything in the script got filmed, plus a little extra. Apparently, they filmed a five-minute sequence that would have picked up right where the film ended that shows him being pulled out of the, the hole. Yeah. Um, just in case they didn't intend to use it, but just in case test audiences absolutely hated the ending, they could okay. just tack that on at the end and be done with it. I'm glad they didn't. No, but, uh, Yeah. That's the third, you know, slow fade to black. Actually, it's a little quicker than slow th- this time, but it's, it's where the movie's like, you know, what happens next. We don't have to show you the guy gets out. He hears yeah. the whistle. He gets out.
1: I love the ending. And I honestly, there were so many things that happened throughout the course of the movie that were, unexpected. I didn't expect to be cared for about halfway through the movie. I, I knew that it was going to continue to be a bad time, like hope to the kids were okay, but I didn't sure. expect them to be. Yeah. I, I also, I felt so nervous. Uh, maybe one of my favorite scenes is when Loki has the daughter in the backseat of the car and they're racing to the emergency room. That's the best. So tense and it's raining and the lights are blurring. So So,
0: well shot.
1: So well done. But I was like, I don't expect her to, like, I I would not have been surprised if she died on the way there or in the hospital. So like, I wasn't expecting to be cared for by this film. So at the end, I didn't feel like I needed a clear ending or like a bow tied up. I mean, I was happy to be dropped off there. And I felt like this Loki has proven to be so methodical and committed to completing this project that he's probably going to get him out and they're going to have some kind of. Not a normal life, but like people will like the order will be restored to, right. to the, world of the film.
0: Life and, will go on. Yeah.
1: And he'll be then in a literal prison most likely. And great. I mean.
0: Yeah. We never see the reunion with the father and the daughter. And, and I'm okay with that. Uh, if, if you people that listen to this podcast probably know I like an ambiguous ending.
1: Huh. It's,
0: it's fine. But yeah, it would have been nice to see that. That's not how life is. You know, we don't always get moments like that. So even when the daughter woke up, which all which happens off camera. Yeah. When the daughter comes to in the hospital and she's fine. I'm sure one of her first questions was, where's daddy? And uh, how did they handle that? You know, we find out just from Loki looking at the paper and it says, you know, here's his picture still missing. Yeah. I wonder if it was three days later. I wonder if they went that hard with the Christ analogy.
1: It seems like they're so. It's just so woven into the movie. Like I expect that it at least meant something to the writer and the director mm-hmm. that he put in that dark hole and it was covered and yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that it meant something. I think also too going back to the sort of like religious symbols, the snakes must have meant so you know Satan and yeah. uh, snakes were such. And I I'm not. Uh, Do you feel like you have a good grasp on how the snakes were originally came into play? Like, was it just that this aunt and uncle, the kidnapping duo owned, like were snakes around the kidnapping victims or where'd that
0: come (laughs) from? I'm not sure if that's one of those things that was just left unexplained or if there was a visual cue somewhere or just a line of dialogue that for whatever reason I missed, I don't know. But symbolically, Satan for sure,
1: right, right, for
0: sure. Uh, and in fact uh, a video essay i watched made it a point to point out that what the little girl was being injected with at the end was snake venom
1: uh, makes, okay
0: makes sense yeah but uh, i don't recall that ever being spelled out or, or made clear to the audience at all
1: no yeah and the the copycat guy had a snake thing too yeah where he had like the suitcases and the snakes. And obviously it was like meaningful to, you know, that that poor guy really gets nothing good from this movie. I like that
0: actor. I can't remember his name. I, I can't too. remember that guy's name, but he's been in a lot of Denis Villeneuve's films.
1: Is he usually that kind of guy? Just kind of like a weird yes. guy? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. He was in the recent uh, Suicide Squad that David okay. Gun- or, or James Gunn made. He played a very weird character in that. He was in, um well, another, uh, he did a Marvel movie. He was in the Ant-Man movies playing a weirdo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and he
0: was in uh Blade Runner 2049. He played like a, a coroner in that movie.
1: Okay. Was, one of those guys.
0: Yeah. He died a horrible death in that one. Yeah. That scene was, and you know, the thing is the second time you watch this movie and you know where it's going and you know where Paul Dano's character, what's really up with him. Yeah. I felt so bad for the guy. And on the first viewing, I kind of empathized a little bit more with Keller. With it's like, yeah, I get yeah. it though, man. I understand why you would resort to torture. Yeah. But then once you get to the end of the movie and you realize that kid's just as much a victim yeah. as your daughter was. I don't know how you live with yourself after you torture somebody like that.
1: Who, ironically, is you're basically uh, torturing someone who was victimized in the same way that your daughter yes.
0: is. So it's
1: a weird full circle thing. And yeah, I think it's brilliant the way that it's written and the way that Paul Dano played the character and that you question how innocent he is. The whole, I never came to a conclusion about how aware he was of what he'd helped. Obviously it seemed like, Mm -hmm. you know, the aunt was the puppet master here and it it doesn't seem like Paul Dano's character really had any sort of agency in his sort of day-to-day life and obviously had been traumatized and there may be some stockholm syndrome sort of happening there but there's just enough the comment he makes when keller attacks him in the parking lot yeah could be taken two ways it could be taken as he's the sick psychopath and he you know is trying to torment him or it could be someone who is just yeah
0: He's sort of Forrest Gump in a way, you know, and he just, he's trying to, it it almost felt like it was almost a consolation, like he was trying to console the guy in a way. Well, they they weren't.
1: Right till I left them. I didn't want to hurt them. Right.
0: But you totally understand why Keller flipped out when he heard that. It's like, yeah, this guy did it clearly.
1: The dog strangling that happened and
0: yeah he didn't win any uh <laughs> any yeah. favor in my household when he did that shit <laughs> but, but
1: that's also what people who are abused do is they you know mm-hmm. are they pass it on so yeah there's a part of you that's like oh if he's been kidding what How was he like six or seven years old when he was abducted like he was in that little video that we watched of mm-hmm. him young so if he's for 20 something years lived with miss crazy lady and was abused and drugged and who knows snake venom or lsd or whatever like yeah you feel just bad enough for him and there's a read where he's doing things and it's calculated and it's you know manipulative and evil the the dog and the singing jingle bells and the comment he makes to Keller. but there's another read where he really is just unaware and not comprehending what's going on.
0: I think that's why I like this movie so much. I'm going to have to just keep going back to it because I feel like I'm going to get more out of it every time I watch it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If
0: I'm smart enough anyway, because it's a well done script. There's, there's setups, there's payoffs, there's stuff that you don't realize is being set up until it gets paid off later on. It's a tight script. Really, I can't think of a scene that we could do without. They all feel necessary.
1: Yeah. Like in, in terms of like length, did you feel like everything was completely justified like we needed all of that.
0: Yeah, I think so. Sometimes we just need the ambience. We just need the mood. Yeah. And even if nothing is being accomplished narratively, there's still a mood that's being conveyed. The whole the, the scene where it's uh, where he follows Keller to the liquor store parking lot.
1: Yeah.
0: Starts off it's raining, just cold, and and then it's snowing by the end of the scene, which I thought yeah. was you never see that in a movie. That's that's weird how you never see weather change during the course of, of, of one scene. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw uh, Villeneuve himself talking about that. And he said it just reminded him of where he's from. I think he's uh Quebecois. Is that how you say that?
1: Not sure. Yeah. I'm a
0: Mississippi kid. I, yeah. I have a hard time <laughs> wrapping my mouth around these French words, but yeah, I think he's a uh, French Canadian pardon. I know it's not the same thing.
1: Yeah. But no, yeah, it feels, it felt like we were in good hands. Like it, I, there's some movies where you're like, clearly there's some fluff. Or, or there's some things that the director was doing just, uh, or the writer had put in just for fun uh, mm-hmm. because it's artsy or, you know, self-serving in some way. But no, uh, honestly, it is very long. I almost, I could see it being like a really solid, like five, six hour, like mini series. I got whiplash from all of the different elements coming together as they did. I mean, it it felt like very densely packed, even for how long it was. So if anything, I could have taken more time to breathe through all of the story elements, but it certainly never um, lost my attention. (laughs) I'll say that.
0: (laughs) I was engaged the whole way through, even with the heavy, heavy subject matter, which I think that's just going to be a theme this season because Villeneuve seems to pick scripts that are, have some pretty dark stuff. I don't know if you've seen any of his earlier work.
1: No, I was uh, gonna. Yeah, I was gonna ask your opinion because I haven't seen his other work, especially mm-hmm. not like the earlier work. So, do you do you feel like this kind of lines up with his voice yeah. as a director? I mean, this yeah. feels like on brand. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. He, he's he's into dark stuff. Uh, the yeah. the first feature length he made, I believe, was like a direct to TV Canadian production,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Maelstrom. That was back in 2000, 2001, something like that. Then he did a series of short films. Then his next full length, I think Polytechnique. I think that may have been a full length one. And that's about an actual school shooting that happened in Canada. Ooh. That spe- uh, The shooter specifically targeted women. Yeah. And that's clearly heavy stuff. And then I'm going to try to pronounce it right on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Incendies is what it looks like if you're a dumb American like me. Uh-huh. I watched that one recently too. And that's, oh my God, this this was light viewing compared to that one. That's yeah. a, that's to even tell you what the film is about. Uh, I feel like I should go take a shower afterwards. It's it's dark and it's bleak. And it just seems to be the subject matter that he finds himself attracted to, which, you know, it's fine. Yeah. There's room for that.
1: Yeah, there is something very theatrical about what he does. And you mentioned, you know, earlier, it's a lot of people talking in a room, but it does feel like certain scenes to me feel like, uh, we're watching a play on stage i mean the, uh, just the building of tension and suspense and he never gives you a break i mean mm-hmm. i felt like I was clenching my body pretty much from after you know we had maybe two or three minutes of peace at the beginning thanksgiving oh but even then you know you and even you know, then it's not that
0: peaceful once you've seen the movie, because you know that just around the corner on that block, something horrible is happening. So even that is kind of ruined on the second watch. It's like this isn't, yeah. this is peaceful for them, but they don't know what's happening. Yeah. Uh, was, go ahead.
1: I was going to, I was going to ask uh, your take on so uh, as, you know, speaking of the beginning of the movie and, you know, the RV is already been parked by the time the kids and the teenagers go on the walk and they mentioned that someone's inside Is your take on that that it was just the Alex Jones character, or do you think the aunt was inside, and and you just used him to, like, lure the kids?
0: I feel like it was probably the both of them. Yeah. But, well.
1: Because it didn't seem like he could drive well. Or or maybe he just panicked when he was later at the gas station, and he ran onto the—obviously, at some point— the the girls got in the RV and they went to the aunt's house and then were taken out. But yeah, I was curious because they never really painted that picture in full of it. Was it just, you know, the Alex Jones character?
0: I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if the aunt was in the the van or not because it was all done at her behest. Right. Whether she's sort of the Charles Manson in this situation, she wasn't there for the big crime necessarily, as yeah. far as we know. But she was behind it. So I, I suppose it doesn't really matter yeah. if she were there. Yeah. But it, it's an interesting question of logistics. But I, I don't, I don't know that it really matters.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's so many, so many things that are ambiguous enough that you could kind of keep, you know, turning the wheels and figure.
0: I like that about the ambiguity. It. Yeah. What the camera doesn't show is oftentimes scarier than what it does.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So yeah, something I've noticed about his films and again, he doesn't he tends to not contribute to the scripts mostly. Sometimes he doesn't. But just the scripts that he picks out, they tend to they tend to highlight how capricious life can be. There's not always a nice tidy a bow put on the end, like, okay, this is the end of that story. And now they live happily ever after. And they're also not completely bleak and nihilistic either. And the arcs that his characters go through tend to be about them just kind of accepting the ambiguity of life and how capricious things are and things either work out or they don't. And there's not really an outside agent forcing goodness to triumph or evil. It's just, sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes they do. And when they don't, it seems like that arc tends to be, you just learn to live with it. Just accept how ambiguous things are.
1: What's interesting too. I'm thinking about that. As you're saying it, there is this sort of mystery and, and almost chaos to the way things are happening. But at the same time, it's balanced out by everything feels in the story very intentional and structured it doesn't feel like anything is just thrown in or any symbol or image or is just thrown in haphazardly so it's it, what a fun ride to feel like it, you know at least I feel like I fully trust that even if I don't understand something that the writer and the director put it in there for a good reason and maybe it's just going to contribute to like an emotional response or maybe subconsciously I'm connecting some dots in some way even if I'm I'm not able to verbalize what it is or why it is open-ended in many ways. But then in other ways, it feels like if you just keep digging and digging and digging, you're going to hit something. Mm -hmm. Which yeah, it creates almost like a, an obsession that you could have when you're watching a movie like this and just, Oh, I'm so close to fully getting all of the pieces of the puzzle.
0: A lot of my favorite films are the ones that I, that didn't land with me the first watch. Yeah. (laughs) I liked Prisoners when I watched it for the first time a few years ago. Yeah. But it was all based on just the narrative level and just, oh, look at that little push-in. That was neat or whatever that the camera yeah. did. Just the technical stuff. But the subtext, I, I it was totally lost on me. Yeah. I, I didn't get it until the second watch. And even then it was with me watching video essays and reading reviews and stuff and just listening to people smarter than me. The movies that I tend to love over a lifetime are the ones that Kind of like this. I've only seen this one twice and I feel like I'm going to have to watch it again. But right. yeah, I feel like it's going to reward repeat viewings. And those tend to be the movies that that stay with yeah with us or at least with me the longest very few movies that I would consider among my favorites or ones that I loved immediately
1: yeah yeah and it depends like what what do you want to get out of watching movies and this one kind of can satisfy two different types of viewers which is you know just the mainstream moviegoer who just wants something exciting and rewarding and they're eating their popcorn and then people like us who can really kind of like nerd out, you know, about the filmmaking side of things and, uh, the production side of things like we, everybody wins. You can watch it on the surface and just be thrilled, or you can really dig deep. So I was surprised when I, when I learned that it was a pretty big success, just like box office wise, but not yeah. at the same time. We have Jake Gyllenhaal and it's, it's dark and scary and thrilling and mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, not just Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, the cast is
1: Huge, yeah. as I mean, it's stacked as it different.
0: can be. Roger yeah. Deakins is on board. I mean, yeah. yeah, this this movie did have everything going for it until I watched, I think it was Arrival or Sicario, which is where I first noticed Villeneuve. Here's something I came across. This is just very brief, sort of as yeah. an aside. The uh, screenwriter for this film, I'm going to give it a shot here. His name is... Aaron Guzakowski, I think that's how you pronounce this gentleman's name. He wrote this and he he was uh heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe.
1: Oh, okay. This yeah. whole
0: thing was written around the premise for the cask of Amontillado, And if you're not up on your Poe, that's where a guy murders someone by sealing him up in a wall.
1: Yes. I see this. I see this connection.
0: So they took that idea because the big turn in this movie is when you realize, oh God, Keller went over the line here. He straight up kidnapped this guy and he does in fact seal him up into a wall. Yep. Yeah. So yep. This, this This movie was sort of influenced by Edgar Allan Poe in a weird roundabout way.
1: I could see that. Yeah. And obviously uh, he took the prompt and really ran with it. But yeah, everybody in this movie is Yes, build up in some way internal. It's
0: like let's take a look at why that guy did that and really explore the why, not the actual act of it, but everything that led up to it. That's the interesting stuff.
1: Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. The 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 scene where uh Paul Dano's character actually gets boarded up in the shower and there's just like that little like eye hole.
0: What a great oh, shot. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Villeneuve loves his darkness. I've noticed that he tends to use maybe I'm reading too much into this. He backlights his characters a lot. A lot of people are in silhouette quite often, or they're just surrounded by darkness. And that's very much on purpose. Like When, when the characters are unsure about something, mm-hmm. whether it's their moral position, what they're doing, or why, uh, they, they tend to be surrounded by darkness. And that, that uncertainty that comes with it is conveyed visually to us. And uh, I heard someone say that you know you may not have noticed it, but your brain did. Yes. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great way. That's, that's red letter media. I think that's a perfect way of summing that up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the the ways that really creative ways that light is brought into uh, the scenes, like a flashlight or headlights from a car or light, you know, coming from the other room and it's just kind of seeping in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like I can get, I feel like, A lot of movies in the kind of like action thriller sort of genre, I can get tired of just everything's dark and in motion all the time. But he's actually using it to a great effect, crisp and clean. Yeah. Not just we're throwing you around in the dark to disorient you or to cheat whatever we're trying to pull off here. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And it's not we're not trying to cover up uh, the fact that we've got a billion special effects going on, too. Yeah. And maybe yeah. they're not done. We didn't have enough time to do it. So let's just darken the entire color palette and call it a day. Yeah. These aren't special effects extravaganzas, his movies, or at least they tend to not be. Uh, Dune, I'm sure. And, and Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, again, this is something set in suburbia in small town Pennsylvania. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's mostly people in rooms talking. Not a lot of special effects going on in this. His agonizingly slow pans that slowly yeah. reveal what's going on just outside the frame, those slow push-ins or pullbacks that he does, the way this film opens with yeah. the deer, and then the camera yeah. just pulls back and it's great. Yeah.
1: And to complement the visuals is uh the sound design is just a really solid as well. It and subtle too it's not like distracting or like trying too hard to be artsy or whatever it's just uh, almost like amplifying real sound like I feel like the um pig head in the sink moment you hear like the flies buzzing first and you're like oh because you still don't know if the kids could be there or not yeah I felt like yeah, the, the use of sound was really well done.
0: Yeah, that's another one of the the, the trademarks that I, that I came across in his filmmaking. It's that the, the the score tends to be you're sort of unsure if it's sound coming from the environment that the characters are in or if it's yeah. actual score. He tends yeah. to kind of blur that line, especially Blade Runner 2049, because everything is sort of alien in that film. And the music yeah. is that droney, you know, keyboardy type stuff. But then every now and again, you realize, oh, no, that sound that seems to be blending into the music is actually coming from that vehicle over there or whatever. And yeah. he did that a lot in this one, too. Uh, uh, the pig head, uh, especially that moment yeah. that stands out.
1: Very organic.
0: Well, yeah. Um, I think we might be getting towards the end here. How do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, I feel good. It's been fun to to talk through it. And there's just so much to unpack yeah. that it's nice to get it out of my head now. Yeah,
0: yeah, same. <laughs> I, I'm kind of anxious in a, <laughs> a dark way to go back and kind of watch it again, because I, I know there's going to be more I'm going to yeah. get out of it. I haven't figured out what's up with Loki. I haven't figured out what his name is, yeah. The the if there's some kind of a duality going on with him and Keller. You know, maybe he represents the scientific, methodical, secular approach. Yeah. And did that fail or did the, the religious, spiritual aspect fail? Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and watch it again, but it's a tough watch. Not because it's not a great movie. It keeps you engaged. But the the subject matter, like most of his movies, is really, really dark, can be bleak. Yeah. But yeah. there is light at the end of that tunnel, even if he doesn't specifically show it to us. It happens during the credits.
1: You get a little bit of satisfaction and you feel like you earned it. At that point in the movie, a little kid's alive, great. He's probably to get out of that hole. Awesome. The whistle ended up saving him, ironically. So yeah. yeah, you you get a little treat at the end. That's that's all you really need.
0: I feel good about it. Good talk.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. It was great meeting you. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Take care. That's it for our season three premiere be on the lookout for madeline's feature film debut currently in production sunshine girls a dark comedy slash sci-fi about motherhood and women's reproductive rights you can follow her on instagram or on facebook at sunshine girls film and you can give us a follow on instagram at filmography underscore club underscore podcast while you're at it maybe leave us a review wherever you stream or download the show every little bit helps i'd like to thank my guest madeline hicks I'd also like to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and the ever-patient Michael Eads. Filmography Club is produced by the hard-working folks that we own this town in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanus. Thank you for listening.